Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches part five of his series, Sent, Living a Life on Mission, in this message from February 10th. It's become increasingly difficult to open a ministry book or attend a church conference and not be accosted with this word, missional. A quick search in Google uncovers the presence of missional communities, missional leaders, missional worship, missional habits, as we heard this morning, even missional seating and missional coffee. But what does it mean to be missional? The term missional describes the wholesale and thorough reorientation of the church around mission, not around missions with an S, but around mission without the S. It is a way of living. It's not a program. It's not an affiliation. It's not a church growth strategy, nor is it an activity. David Bosch, the South African missiologist, once wrote, Mission is the alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ. Mission is not primarily concerned with church growth. It is primarily concerned with the reign and rule of the triune God. And Ed Stetzer re-expands on this when he wrote, Missional is a way of being that leads to a way of acting. The missional church is made up of Christians who are called through God's gracious redemption to live for him and his great mission throughout the world and who are sent out to be co-laborers with God to accomplish his mission in the world. Cam Roxburgh serves as vice president of missional initiatives with our North American Baptist Conference. And regarding this missional movement, and it is a movement, he writes, becoming a missional church means having a renewed theological vision of the church on mission with God. In that statement, he says a lot, but I also believe that in that statement, he is challenging us to rethink our understanding of who God is, what his mission is, and what the purpose of the church is. And I hope that you have been doing this as we've been examining over the last several weeks the implications of Jesus' words to his disciples and by extension to us. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said, As a father has sent me, even so I am sending you. To move us toward a renewed theological vision, we spend time discussing the mission of God. Philip Nation says, God's mission among us is to glorify himself through the work of redeeming and restoring creation. The Bible is a sweeping narrative of God's work to provide the reason and the means by which we can be redeemed and restored in our relationship with God, a relationship that has been broken and marred by sin. But we also spend some time considering the nature of God. When we think of God's nature, we immediately think of God's love and his holiness and his power and his justice and so forth. But how often do we reflect on the missionary nature of God? Because scripture is replete with language that speaks to the missionary or the sending nature of God. God is a sending God. He sends us into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our world to accomplish his mission. This then led us to conclude that God's mission and his missionary nature is the impetus. It's the mode, the method, the compulsion for the church. The church declares the veracity of and demonstrates the transformative power of the gospel to a pain-filled and to a sin-filled world. The church, however, is not an end in itself. Rather, it is God's instrument in fulfilling his mission. As Christopher Wright says, it is not so much a case that God has a church, 
a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. We may think that he's saying the same thing there, but that's, there's uh, a, a contrast, a difference in, in the way that that is put. In other words, missions was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. It was made for God's mission. It's for this reason the church exists. The church is not an entity unto itself. The church is a spirit-embodied, empowered body of Christ that is gathered because of God's mission, and it's sent to join his mission. God's mission then defines and shapes everything the church does. Individually and collectively, we then must embrace the reality that we are a sent people, sent into our neighborhoods, communities, and world as God's instrument to carry out his mission. And in so doing, we assume the identity and the posture of a missionary. Again, I want to quote Ed Stetzer, who said, Missional means adopting the posture of a missionary, learning and adapting to the culture around you while remaining biblically sound. Think of it in this way. Missional means being a missionary with ever leaving, without ever leaving your zip code. Well, for us in Canada, we would say missional means being a missionary without ever leaving your postal code. But we are not sent in our own strength. Rather, we are sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and me through the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit clothed the early disciples with power to carry out God's mission, so also will he clothe us with power in order to go to people and places he longs, us to, he longs to take us to people and places we never imagined going to in order to accomplish his mission. And of course, we are sent with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is a joyous proclamation of God's redemptive activity in Christ Jesus on behalf of man enslaved by sin. Forgiveness of sin and justification by faith are good news because they remove obstacles to the only lasting, all-satisfying source of joy, Jesus Christ himself. This gospel affects every aspect of our lives. It affects our thoughts, our values, our practices, our beliefs, our habits, and so forth. As we live in the power of the gospel, this gospel sets the direction for our lives. This then is the reality. As God redeems his people, they are called to join his work by proclaiming what he has done, demonstrating his transforming power in their lives and faith community, and making the presence of God's inaugurated kingdom known in the world. This is the implication of the gospel. So what I have set up to this point is simply a review of what we have discussed in the last few weeks. This morning, I would like us to consider how we can go about announcing the rule and reign of Christ, how we can take the gospel into our neighborhoods, communities, and into the world. It's my conviction that we announce the rule and reign of Christ through proclamation of and enactment of the gospel. And I want to try to explain to you what I mean by this. Through proclamation and enactment of the gospel, we call people not to join our church, not to convert to our church culture, not to look like us, to dress like us, to like our music, to learn our spiritual language, to give to our budget, or to assimilate into our structure. Rather, we proclaim and enact a revised version of Jesus' own message as he ministered on this earth. 
When Jesus walked this earth, he proclaimed the coming of God's reign. Therefore, in our proclamation, we bear witness to Jesus himself, to what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. We have the privilege of announcing to people that Jesus died for their sins so that they might be reconciled to God and therefore live forever under God's reign, both in this life and in the life to come. Our good news is more than you can go to heaven when you die. It is you can be reconciled to God right now. You can begin to experience true fellowship with God by living under his reign and rule because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. But this involves both proclamation and enactment or demonstration of the gospel. And Peter makes this point in his first epistle. He writes, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Notice what Peter says. Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He is implying that we, by the integrity of our lives, by the things that we put our hands to, we will have opportunity to share our faith, to give witness of Jesus. There's a popular saying that is often repeated by Christians, and maybe you yourself have even uttered these words, which are commonly attributed to Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel always. Use words if necessary. And I think we know what people are getting at when they say something like this. After all, as Christians, we should live in such a way that our lives point to the person and work of Jesus. However, good intentions cannot overcome two basic problems with this quote and its uh, supposed origin. One, Francis never said it. And two, the quote is not biblical. Mark Galley has pointed out that there is no record of Francis, a member of a preaching order, uttering anything close to this. In fact, he says everything we know about the man suggests that he would not have agreed with this supposed quote. He was well known for his preaching and often preached up to five times a day. The idea may not have resonated with Francis, but for many today, this wordless ministry of just living a good life is a compelling approach. After all, they think, you know, words are cheap and actions speak louder than words. And so they think that if we don't have to say anything, that's, that's good. And then they also don't have to deal with their fears or they don't have to be attentive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as he nudges them to bear witness of Christ. If they, if they hold to this, this saying that preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. But Mark Alley explains that this sentiment complements our culture rather well. Preach the gospel, always use words if necessary, goes hand in hand with a postmodern assumption that words are finally empty of meaning. It subtly, subtly denigrates a high value that the prophets, Jesus and Paul, put on preaching. Of course we want our actions to match our words as much as possible, but the gospel is a message, news about an event and a person upon which the history of the planet turns. And this is a real problem, not from whom the quote originally came, but just how it can give us the incomplete understanding of the gospel 
and how God saves sinners. Christians are quick to encourage each other to live out the gospel, to be the gospel to our neighbors, to even gospel each other. And yes, a godly life should serve as a witness for the message we proclaim. But without words, what can our actions point to but ourselves? A godly life cannot communicate the incarnation, Jesus' substitution for sinners, or the hope of redemption by grace alone through faith alone. We aren't the good news. Jesus is. But we can herald it. We can sing it. We can speak it. We can preach it to all who will listen. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He summarized it as the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through whom sin is atoned for. In other words, the gospel is history. It is a declaration of something that actually happened. And since the gospel is a saving work of Jesus, it isn't something that we can do. It is something that we must announce. We do live out its implications, but if we are going to make the gospel known, we will need to do so through words. The apostle Paul made this point to the church in Rome when he said, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone announcing, without someone proclaiming? If we're going to announce a rule and reign of Christ, we must use words since it is necessary. This morning in the equipping module, we viewed a video presentation by Michael Frost entitled Rethinking Witness. And in the presentation, he debunked the myth, preach the gospel, always use words if necessary. He did make the distinction, however, between an evangelist, those who have the gift of evangelism, and those who do not have that gift. As I said, an evangelist is someone who possesses that particular gift, but most people in the church would not consider themselves an evangelist having that gift of evangelism. However, that does not excuse those who do not believe they have the gift from bearing witness of Christ. Pointing us to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, he says that we are to be living lives of such incredible integrity, lives of such good works that people will take notice and they will be compelled to ask us why we do the things that we do, which then gives us opportunity to give witness of Jesus. But he went on to say that our lives are often no different than those who don't know Christ. He said that there is nothing that we do that makes our lives compelling and, and cause people to take notice. Therefore, no one is asking about the reason for our hope. Like Jesus, we have been sent to enact the good news. Not only are we to proclaim what Christ has done for us, but we are also to live out that good news in our daily lives. Gospel demonstration is serving others in the name of Christ, showing his love when we act upon what we say we believe about Christ. Christians, as Christians, we are to be salt and light in a world that deeply needs the salt and the light. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus announces and inaugurates his public ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he talks about his calling to preach good news to the poor and to the captive and to the oppressed. And in so doing, Jesus made the kingdom tangible in the material world. 
He was zealous for the things of his father. And that worked itself out with his interaction with and caring for a broken people. Throughout scripture, we find that God constantly is calling us to be concerned for widows, to be concerned for the orphans, to be concerned for the blind, the poor, and others who are on the margins of society, those who are left out and ignored. In the New Testament, there are many references to good works. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, Paul said, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Yes, God's gracious work restores our relationship with him when we repent of our sin, confess the Messiah as Lord, and trust in him. But this restoration also includes a reordering of one's life. Reordering of one's loves, one's ambitions, one's purpose. Followers of Jesus demonstrate the hope of the gospel in both word and deed because the gospel transforms them. Earlier, I quoted Cam Roxburg, who said, Becoming a missional church means having a renewed theological vision of the church on mission with God. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say, serving as a sign, servant, and foretaste of the kingdom of God. That's a loaded statement. What does he mean by that? I think the word sign, servant, and foretaste captures a call of the church to reflect the reality of the kingdom in its love and service towards others. We are to do works associated with God's kingdom. The goal of the kingdom is to make things as they should be, a work in process until God brings all things to its completion. We partner with God in the advancement of his kingdom through proclaiming and living kingdom-shaped lives in this present age, praying for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God's kingdom is finally and completely, when it is final and completely comes, what will it look like? We know that there will be no more suffering. There will be no more oppression, no more racial tension, no more sex trafficking, no more drug trafficking, no more infanticide. Therefore, when we seek to alleviate suffering, when we seek to work toward reconciliation, when we uphold the sanctity of life and we advocate for the oppressed, when we, we give the world a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like and what it will ultimately be. As we proclaim the good news of God's kingdom, we enact that good news through good works by loving the unlovely, caring for the poor, seeking justice for the oppressed. We strive to live out the reality of God's kingdom in everything that we do. The words and works of the kingdom go together. In the, they came together in the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of the first disciples, and in the ministry he has sent you and me to do. Through enacting the message of the gospel, we demonstrate its validity. If Jesus proclaimed the presence of God's kingdom but showed no evidence for his claim, he would have been rejected as one more religious charlton. But by healing the sick, casting out demons, loving the marginalized, feeding the hungry, Jesus showed that his message is true. And like Jesus, we must practice what we preach so that people around us will listen to what we say with the hope that they too would embrace it. I think of William 
Wilberforce, someone who sought to restore justice in a broken and sin-filled world. Born into wealth and privilege in 1759, Wilberforce was known in his early years only for his love of socializing and his several physical infirmities. He had no guiding purpose for his well-to-do yet meaningless existence. When he, when he was elected to the British Parliament as a young man, he sought nothing more than his own fame. But when a Christian friend shared the good news of Christ with him, Wilberforce recognized the emptiness of his life. He considered withdrawing from politics altogether, but as he trusted Christ for salvation on Easter Sunday, 1786, he began to sense a new zeal to serve the Lord within the sphere of government. Ultimately, he seized upon the abolition of slavery as a focus of his Christian and political energies. Though discouraged by many Christian leaders because of the apparent impossibility of the mission, Wilberforce believed that God had sent him into politics to fight against the evils of slavery. In 1788, he introduced a measure in the British Parliament to end the slave trade and was resoundingly defeated. Similar measures were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. Finally, in 1807, Parliament voted to abolish the slave trade, but left the institution of slavery untouched. So Wilberforce had much more to do. For the next 26 years, he continued his crusade. Finally, on July 26, 1833, the emancipation of slaves was ensured with a committee of the House of Commons when they ironed out the details of Wilberforce's anti-slavery bill. Three days later, after 45 years of God-honoring effort, William Wilberforce died, leaving an unsurpassed legacy of Christian concern for justice. His efforts encouraged American evangelicals who worked tirelessly for the abolition of slavery in the United States. Our world is filled with cynicism, especially cynicism about religion. We all know too well the stories of hypocritical religious leaders and institutions, those whose works contradicted their words. People today are yearning for something authentic, something that can be trusted, not just mere hype or or another slick sales pitch, the world will hear our good news about Jesus only when they see the good news enacted in our lives, individually and collectively. The testimony of faithful, active believers has a way of getting around even people's strongest defenses. And so the church is called to be a foretaste of God's kingdom, a place where people can get a taste of the future in the present. When the church is a foretaste, it demonstrates what life is like when men and women live under the rule and reign of God. When the people of God love one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, live in harmony with one another. In this way, the church becomes a concrete, tangible, though not perfect, foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. The church is an instrument through which God's will for justice, for peace, for freedom is done in the world. The church is to live out her calling of being a sign of the kingdom, pointing people to the reality beyond what we can see. A foretaste of the kingdom where we grow to love one another as Christ loves us 
and an instrument in the hands of God to bring more of heaven to earth in concrete ways. For the church is to be a credible sign, foretaste, an instrument. And thus it needs to be a community rich with the fruit of the Spirit. And so as I conclude this morning, I simply want us to reflect upon this question. In what ways can you, in what ways can I, proclaim and enact the gospel, the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, pointing people to what the kingdom will be like when Jesus finally establishes his kingdom upon this earth. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see how we individually and collectively can be the good news to the oppressed, to proclaim the good news to those who are in the margins of society, to those who are bound by addictions, to those who are going through serious issues. Father, I pray that we would be concerned about those who are hungry, those who are homeless, those who um, are lonely. I pray, Father, that our concern would lead us into doing something to minister to individuals in such situations. And Father, I pray that as we do, we would go with a message of hope on our lips, a message of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the, of, of the world, the one who sets up rule and reign in the hearts of those who respond to him in faith. Father, empower us to be missional people, living our lives on mission, being a sent people, going in your name and for your glory. In the name of Christ, I pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.